This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by Asia-Pacific editor Damon Evans and digital journalist Hamish Penman. And I'll start at the top by saying, yes, there has been a major story in Qatar this week. We're not going to discuss that in any depth here. The facts, uh, as we understand them, are carefully laid out online on energyvoice.com, so please do head over there for that. I'm sure the majority of people will know what we're talking about, and if you don't, head on over to the website. You might find out. There we are. Um, But for us, uh, we'll be on business as usual. Uh, And, you know, Damon, I think the UK has given it a really good go this year in terms of most damaging and, frankly, insane economic policies, uh, despite warnings from their advisors. But I see that uh, Australia is is really having a go for that trophy. Tell us what's going on there in terms of the gas market. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm getting deja vu, Alistair. Um, Austra- the, it, it's bizarre. It's crazy. I think... Um, I think you described it as batshit crazy earlier. But these are the words that come to mind when um, uh, the Labour government has effectively announced the near nationalisation of the the country's gas market, according to the big gas producers. That that is um, word on the street last week when the government announced it as planning to seize control of domestic gas prices. Um extraordinary new legislation was introduced to parliament today thursday the 15th of december to cap domestic gas prices uh this is designed to limit the impact of soaring uh local power bills um and ignoring the protests from the nation's powerful exporters uh so australia's parliament passed legislation that will cap the wholesale gas prices for the next 12 months and they also imposed uh, price ceiling on coal. Um, this is despite an unprecedented, uh, sorry, unprecedented supply squeeze just after the new government was voted in in May. So around June time, there was um, uh, not enough power going around. There was um, fears of blackouts. Uh, you, you know, the market was already in trouble. The power market, and now with this, there's a lot more uncertainty and instability added in um so what is the intervention the intervention means that gas prices will be capped at 12 australian dollars per gigajoule that's about 8.7 us dollars per million british thermal unit Uh, the legislation is also going to provide additional energy bill relief for low and middle income household payments through uh, sorry, low- and middle-income households through payments made by the states. Um, The Chancellor, or sorry, Treasury, uh, Treasurer Jim Chalmers uh, said that Australia didn't need to sacrifice living standards to ensure a functional and fair gas market. Uh, Without intervention, the next financial year, retail gas prices are expected to increase by a further 20% and electricity prices by a further 36%. That's why urgent action is needed. Uh, the gas industry would disagree, and the lobby group, the Australian uh, Association of Producers and Explorers, APIA, uh, strongly disagrees. Uh, Shell and ExxonMobil have come out against the legislation, which was introduced in uh, the space of a few days with limited consultation and arguably wide-ranging repercussions. Um 
ExxonMobil described it as reckless free market intervention, adding that rushed and ill-considered policy would risk gas shortages and blackouts. Uh, Woodside Energy, Australia's uh, major uh, LNG developer, said um, it creates an environment of uncertainty that will result in investment activity dropping across energy markets, doesn't solve the underlying structural problems in the energy market, makes it harder, not easier. Okay, okay, stark, stark. Yeah, it's uh, pretty pretty bleak. Um, but what, what is interesting, I find, is so I read um, a Guardian article, and, and that was all about how Australian government is um, hitting the big bad bullies of, you know, the big gas bullies with a big stick and... Um, you know, they're getting what they deserve. How very Guardian. <laughs> so again, we have this whole simplification of um, of, of, of the, the, I don't know what you call it, energy markets. Yeah, the, the debate. Yeah. C- can I ask that? I mean, maybe setting aside that, the, I mean, clearly uh, the companies that have businesses there are, are concerned. But I mean, just to set it out for people that maybe aren't as familiar, Australia clearly is a global force in terms of the supply of LNG. I, I mean, how does this impact long-term contracts, for example? I, I mean, are we going to see an impact to, I guess, the price of gas in the global market, you know, if, if this important industry is significantly damaged by what seems to be a fairly, as, as you say, Damon, rushed through uh, policy without much consultation? I mean, it, it would seem that there's some, there, there could be some significant repercussions to this if, if if it's not handled delicately, it doesn't seem to be have been handled delicately so far. Yeah, correct. Um, so Australia, quite yeah, you're quite right, is one of the world's biggest LNG exporters. It's almost neck and neck with Qatar. I think Qatar edged it out by about 81 million tons of LNG exported last year, and Australia's on 80. Um, the 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 mark. So Australia's massive country it's about 30 times bigger than the uk you have uh, the east coast markets and the west coast markets it's the east coast markets that are having problems and there's been some lng export plants developed in the past uh, between 2010 and 2020 that used uh, were fueled by coal seam gas and um and there's always been this um drama or accusations that these plants sucking up gas exporting it and connecting australia to the international markets is what's driving up the gas prices um so so that that, that's one side of it and then in uh, as a result of that they banned a lot of onshore exploration and and they've basically done all they can to kind of limit gas development in those Eastern Australia. But in answer to your question, what does it mean for the global LNG market? Uh, Japan, which is a major importer of uh, Australian LNG and a major investor in Australian LNG imports, um, yeah, Japan gets 40% of its LNG and 60% of its coal from Australia. So they're quite worried. They're quite, they're seeing what's happening here. They're seeing that there's this, um, you know, this this kind of attempt to divert supplies to the domestic market, which is fine if it's not under long-term contract. Um, but but they're worried, despite reassurances from Canberra that, you know, long-term contracts are fine. I think it's more the uncertainty into the future about 
investing in new gas and and short-term contracts over the next couple of years where the uncertainty remains for both buyers and sellers in Australia. Yeah, and, and, and at, at a time when we clearly don't need more gas from other sources in the world, you know, uh, it seems a, an incredible policy. I mean, I guess, yeah, I mean, uh, a couple, couple further, do you think anybody will exit uh, as a consequence of this policy? I mean, I'm assuming it's going to hit bottom lines pretty hard. And uh, I guess the, the other key question maybe is, uh, is this going to have a material impact, uh, I guess, in terms of helping people in Australia who might be struggling with, I guess, energy supply the same way that we are here? Yeah, well, I think obviously the, the mention that there's going to be additional relief for low and middle income households is a good thing and that and that will help them i don't think market intervention and fixing prices is really going to help in the long term i think it's going to cause structural imbalances um an analyst at credit swiss who's very knowledgeable on the australian market sol kavonic he wrote in the end price fixing results in only one outcome and no gas being available at any price um but I think, you know, definitely, ultimately, prices are going to go a lot higher domestically in Australia because there's not going to be any more supply coming on. And I think the whole thing's been politicized as well. So I did a quick quick Google search, and it froze up that Australia's power mix, uh, fossil fuels contributed 71% of total electricity generation last year. Coal was 51%, gas 18%, and oil 2%. So gas is a relatively small part of the power generation mix. Um, you know, gas is used a lot in domestic industry as well. So I think it's more the the the, the businesses that are that are, that will benefit from low gas prices and remain competitive. I don't know that the consumers are going to really benefit in the long term. But hey, what do I know? <laughs> He, he said it. No. Uh, okay. Well, uh, let's let's keep it let's keep an eye on that, uh, David. But thank you for the the analysis. It's good to know that the UK isn't the only place where we're getting insane policies uh, getting thrown out. It's nice to see that uh, happening. Um, well, it's not because clearly it's going to hurt people. But you, you know what I mean. Anyway, I'm going to dig myself out of this hole and move on. Uh, next up, we're targeting a gap in the market in offshore wind. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Now, we know there's some 50 gigawatts of offshore wind planned for the UK between now and 2030. That's a huge amount of offshore wind to be installed. If you think, I think last year we had something like 10 gigawatts across the United Kingdom. And in Europe, it's more like 160 gigawatts by 2030 in terms of the policies announced by various governments for offshore wind. So 
all of that going on, particularly here in the UK, which is very much seen as the, the hot market globally right now, there's a big focus on local content. Can we get a decent chunk of the industrial opportunity here? So we've spoken to a firm uh, that's being set up called Zero Sea Offshore, who've taken note of some of these uh, stats. Uh, and despite these big targets, there are no UK-based companies um, with a fleet of what are called foundation installation vessels to carry out this work. Think of these, I guess, as heavy lift vessels for offshore wind. Uh, Zero C is led by uh, John Ollie Bryce, who was the CEO of Awilco Drilling for nine years. He also built up Oddfiel Drilling's UK business, uh, experienced good knowledge and contacts in the industry to achieve this. So he had some time off after a Wilco, noticed this gap in the market, noting in particular his phrase uh, that it's dominated by the so-called Flemish Mafia. Think Demi, Vanur, Jandanul, Bascalis, etc., etc. And there's only about four of these purpose-built FIVs like this in the world right now. One of them is in Taiwan. One of them is uh, Demi's Orion, which uh, I think only launched earlier this year. It's been really busy ever since. And there's some other vessels, oil and gas crane vessels, that are not really designed for newer types of wind turbines. They, these, these newer turbines, obviously, as they become more uh, powerful, they get bigger. And it means that older oil and gas vessels are kind of entering the, the end of their technical limits uh, to install these. That's according uh, to Bryce. So hence Zero C being set up, still in the early stages, but they've got these brokers, Clarkson's Plateau, Ship designer Ulstein, crane manufacturer Heisman all helping them. They've got their design for their installer Max vessel already, which has a green fuel option included for customers. And they've even priced out shipyards. It's effectively going to be a UK business with a UK fleet, with a UK headquartered, with UK employees. It sounds fantastic. Uh, and obviously the proof is going to be in the pudding. They say the HQ will be in Aberdeen, Edinburgh, or both the home port most likely in Leith. So... Hard to argue with all that. Um, as I say, the proof will be in the pudding. Um, not the first person to set to, tr to attempt this sort of thing, I gather. Bryce, you know, I mentioned Wilco, I mentioned Oddfiel. You would think, okay, this guy's got the credentials to do this. These vessels take about three years to build. Uh, and I asked him, where do you hope to be in a year from now? Well, a year into our three-year build program. So to do that, you need to have a big capital raise which is the next step for them. The plan is to follow a well-trodden path um, for rig startups going to Oslo for an IPO, and they're hoping that will raise enough cash for a deposit on the first vessel. Uh, and later, when the ship's due to come out, they might raise more debt from the market against a first contract. So that's the plan. Uh, as I keep saying, proof will be in the pudding. Uh, and you know, as far as I, and indeed a lot of our readers can see, there is a gap in the market here. Uh, there does seem to be an opportunity for someone UK-based to get after it. And indeed, you know, I spoke to the decom boss of TACA uh, some weeks ago who, who actually said, it's why don't we have a heavy lift business in the UK um, to, to handle things like offshore wind installation? And yes, elements of decommissioning. And I gather that this type of vessel could handle some 
decommissioning work as well. It's not going to be a pioneering spirit or anything like that, obviously, but in terms of some maybe some of the smaller modular elements. So yeah, gap in the market, getting after it seems to be good news, but let's see what happens. Yeah, big gap in the market. I think all the um, vessels that are currently able to install turbines are on long-term contracts, in Scotland anyway. And given that there's a fraction of the projects being built currently that there is going to be in seven, eight years' time, that's a big, big shortage. Um, and it's just kind of one of a number of bottlenecks, I suppose, that are starting to uh, make themselves know now. No, now. But, uh, I mean, it's better to know them now than to know them in eight years' time when you're trying to build these projects. And then suddenly, oh, no, there's no port capacity. There's no uh, heavy lift vessels. So the fact they've got early sight of this is good. Uh, the fact it'll take three years to build a vessel um, still affords enough time, I suppose. But... I mean, I would be surprised if um, the price of vessels weren't going up at a daily rate, given that the price of steel is still particularly high. You see a lot of turbine manufacturers, their accounts, they're really feeling the bite of the price of steel. Um, so I would expect a vessel is, building a vessel is more expensive than it was to one, two years ago. So I'm, I'm sure Ollie has factored that in, given his knowledge of the market and things. But it's interesting to hear, hear about the IPO, which... Yeah, kind of going to going to Oslo Bulls market for an IPO is classic rig market, isn't it? <laughs> classic rig market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think, uh, yeah. I mean, he, he he made no bones about it. Look, hundreds of millions of, of dollars to build something like this, uh, in terms of one one vessel, um, right? It, it's it's apparently going to be a monster, as he puts it. You know, uh, what did he say? Yeah, the vessel will be two hundred and twenty meters long, sixty meters wide. You compare that to a British aircraft carrier, 280 meters long. It is not cheap, as you say, Hamish, uh, the price of steel. And, and that dictates, of course, that the vessel is going to be constructed in Asia. Uh, they, they told, you know, it said to me, yeah, we're going to have to, uh, you know, we have priced out shipyards around the world. Um, we did engage a UK yard, but I, I don't know. I, I didn't say this to him. I, that that seemed like perhaps a formality just to say they could do it. Um, someone like him will, will know very well that uh, a UK yard simply cannot compete on I, on issues like, you know, the price of steel, as you say, Hamish, um, cannot compete with Asia in terms of of, of pricing out for, for, for shipbuilding, um, which is why we don't really have the industry here anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, three years to build it, even even if he got that underway tomorrow, you know, it's still, we're still going to need a lot more of these things, you know, and it, it, it kind of does put into perhaps more stark perspective, there's always aspirational targets for offshore wind deployment in the UK and elsewhere. And, you know, even if you get your grid connections set up, which is a whole other, you know, can of worms, um, you know. Do we have the capacity to actually do it? You know, even if you have the port capacity, again, Hamish, as you say, that's another issue. Um, you know, but you know, are there enough vessels right now to to do it? It, it doesn't look like it. Um, and I think you know these the, the the government targets. You know, they're aspirational. Has anyone had a close look at this and and, and looked at the, how, how pragmatic it actually is? It's unconvincing. I suppose the other element of this we should quickly mention uh, is, uh, you know, we have leasing rounds in, in the UK. We've had things like Scotwind, the Crown Estate round four. We're going to have, a, I think, a Celtic Sea round uh, this year. You know, there's been talk as well with Matheson of a Scotwind 2. Fantastic. 
local content, you know, um, a bigger and bigger consideration here is uh, can you demonstrate you're using local expertise, local companies to in, in these projects? And a heavy lift, you know, uh, an installation vessel as part of that equation could be quite helpful in terms of getting companies to the front of the queue, uh, as Ollie puts it. But there's no doubt about it. You know, there's going to be some casualties in terms of projects falling by the wayside if they can't get in nice and early. I just I just don't see how, how else, because it's not just the UK, it's not just Europe, you know. The US being as slow as they have been with offshore wind, they're they're waking up to it now. Uh, certainly, Southeast Asia uh, as well, Damon. But um, but yeah, we'll, well, I guess we'll see how that plays out. But uh, interesting to see, and we'll see what happens with their their Oslo listing and when that happens. But um, we'll park zero C there. Uh, and next up, we've got a new boss in the hot seat at Offshore Energies UK. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Hamish, um, one of the toughest jobs in the industry right now, heading up the trade body Offshore Energies UK. Um, who have they brought in? Brought in David Whitehouse, who uh, left CNR International earlier this year. We actually covered that at the time. I think it was an update on their um, company's house page saying that uh, that he'd left the company. Um, and yeah, so it turns out he's had a few months off and is now going to be back in the hot seat from January 1st, um, heading up OEUK, taking over from Deirdre Mickey, who will be stepping down at the same time after an eight years in charge. Uh, and a rather difficult eight years in charge, I'd say, as well. She started in a downturn, has gone through COVID, has then seen oil be whipped from all sides at COP26 and is now trying to... I suppose it's back in favour, but is also trying to fight off windfall taxes and further taxes. Um, so he does come in at a particularly interesting and, and volatile, I'd say, time for, for the industry. Um, so, I mean, what are his credentials for, for dealing with it? Well, he was at CNR International for two decades um, as Managing Director and Vice President of Development Operations. Prior to joining CNR um, in 2002, he was employed by oil giant Shell. He held a number of uh, roles. OEUK say he's uh, respected across the sector for his strategic and hands-on leadership in the North Sea, and that he's also a great champion, or a long-standing champion, sorry, of, uh, of Offshore Energies UK. So not a long-standing harsh critic then, as he might have been so <laughs> no I was just I mean they weren't really going to say anything else whether that he's a big fan of the industry but um yeah no so went to PhD in theoretical chemistry from from Cambridge Uni so of course yeah uh, bright cookie clearly um but yeah so he comes in start of next year and Deirdre will be stepping away but it's quite a like we said it's a very very interesting time to be to be taking it on there's the windfall tax there's fears of 
not so much a further windfall tax, I suppose, but much like you were saying earlier, Damon, of the the propensity for should an incoming Labour government, and the polls would suggest that's going to happen in the next couple of years, um, whacking the industry with a big stick. So I think that's something of a concern at the moment, and he'll, they'll obviously be lobbying the, uh, the Labour Party hard to make the case for, for not doing so. But yeah, no, an, an interesting appointment. We've looked forward to to having a chat with uh, with David soon enough. Um, Brian did a very good piece uh, with Deirdre um, in the latest supplement, reflecting on her eight years at at OE UK, formerly OG UK. And yeah, so it's a, a new dawn new dawn for them, and we'll see what it brings. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there, uh, Hamish. That surely, priority number one for them is going to be. Uh, talking down uh, the the new government, the Labour government, which will, uh, as you say, the, the polls would suggest that's uh, almost a certainty now. They've got a, a couple of years, well, not no, not a couple of years, maybe, was it 2024, the next uh, general election? So less than that um, before uh, that might happen. Labour has been pretty damn adamant about the the... The ability to uh, hit the oil and gas industry to further mitigate the cost of living crisis, um, taking away things like the investment allowance linked to the windfall tax, uh, which they've they've deemed a subsidy. Uh, it's a subsidy for electrification. I wouldn't go so far as say it's a subsidy for uh, the investment allowance, but um, you know, ultimately, it is a tax break. And. Uh, if if they were to, to remove that on top of it, all of the other measures that have that have been announced, you know, two windfall taxes in the case of in the space of six months, um, you know, it, it would be damaging, uh, particularly for independent producers in the UK who maybe don't have big uh, investment pipelines as things stand, you know. Um, so and these companies make up a massive chunk of production these days. It's not just the energy majors now. Uh, you know, Harbour Energy is the largest producer in the UK. They've talked about being badly hit by the windfall tax. They've been, uh, they've seen themselves slip off the FTSE 100, um, you know, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of the OE UK members will be concerned about uh, the the political noises coming out of Labour and uh, what are you, David Whitehouse, going to do about it? Um, so yeah, it's, it's a tough job to be taking on. Um, I would argue in some spaces a thankless one, but maybe just to, to pick up on, on Deidre Mickey's time, uh, as you say, Hamish, you know, gosh, what, t- t- the first downturn she came in for, and then, yeah, you had COP26, you had COVID, you had windfall tax. I mean, it, it's hard to think of a more turbulent period for someone to be trying to advocate for uh, an industry that has been pretty heavily demonized uh, from, from many different quarters. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's probably fair to say that it would be difficult to, for anyone to do a better job than she's done. Uh, and she's also been very supportive of us, and we do appreciate that. Uh, I think everyone will have a pretty good understanding on how difficult that job is. But, you know, there, there are some, I know there have been some detractors, you know, uh, heard anecdotally things like, why didn't OEUK go harder on the windfall tax at an earlier time? You know, cutting it off uh, uh, before the, the original tax was was mooted. Um, and I, I think for me, my feeling on that is it doesn't matter who tried, the outcome was going to be the same. Are, are you going to be able to hold back that political tide when you know your members are making these massive profits? Okay, maybe they're not all from the UK, but does the general public appreciate that? Does the general public care? I, I'm not sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, maybe lastly, I, I remember her time 
on uh, on question time, uh, right right after or perhaps amid COP26. Um, really tough audience, I think it's fair to say. Not a balanced audience, I think it's fair to say. Um, and uh, yeah, it was kind of a, a kicking from all sides, but I thought she did a very good job in making her case uh, clearly. Uh, whether or not people listen to it, I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, as demonstrated with the situation in Australia, uh, Damon as well, you know, if you just switch it off tomorrow and, and have these policies that are going to damage the industry, it's going to impact our own domestic um, energy supply, and it may well impact other countries as well. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, gosh, it's a, it's a tough time out there politically, isn't it? <laughs> Difficult to see, but, yeah. D Damon, do you think it's a better a better place or worse place for the oil and gas industry in uh, Australia and Southeast Asia right now than the UK? Because there's a lot of talk... Uh, or there's some talk, maybe a lot a lot would be going too far, but there is some talk of certain companies, you know, seeing all the, the mess that's going on in the UK uh, politic, uh, politically and saying, oh, you know what, it would just be easier to go to Southeast Asia and, and develop stuff there because we've had enough of this. God, that's, a, that's, a that's a tough question. Um, I don't think Australia is any better and I think exploration has nearly basically died there. Um, I don't know if there's still a lot of exploration going on in the UK. A bit better than it has been in the past, but I wouldn't say a lot by any stretch. Yeah, so I wouldn't head to Australia, but I think um, Southeast Asia obviously has its intricacies in the different countries, and it, it, Malaysia is always a bright spot. Um, you mentioned Harbour Energy. They're planning another three wells next year in um, some frontier deep waters after the success of their Timpan 1 um play opening well earlier this year so i think harbor energy could be could be looking elsewhere indonesia could be good if the indonesian government welcomes them with open arms and improves things then um you know who knows indonesia potential new hotspot if the government could they're they're open to gas development they just need to improve the terms and um yeah maybe we could see um, some more companies leave blighty and uh, head to the warmer shores of asia <laughs> sounds good to me <laughs> well to be fair it looks it looks i mean to be fair we're getting a nice kind of nice weather for christmas you know i mean maybe that will convince them i don't know i mean i i've got the heating on i, I am a bit concerned a bit concerned about the bill hamish has not got his heating on i can see and it's, and it's absolutely baltic it's on the verge of, of uh, hypothermia by, by the looks of things um, so yeah, we've all got our own personal choices to make here, uh, as do the companies involved, but yeah, I mean, yeah, best of luck to Deirdre Mickey, um, very quickly, Ryan's piece, um, as you alluded to, uh, Hamish, um, she, she suggested that, um, didn't give anything away, obviously, where she'll be next, but she did suggest that she was quite proud of the work that's been done on diversity and inclusion, uh, during her time on OEUK and, uh, suggested that she might be keen to continue some sort of role, uh, not necessarily at the trade body, but just, you know, continue that work um, in her career. So I don't know. I don't know where that will take her, but we will we'll follow up with keen interest. Um, and yeah, best of luck to, to David Whitehouse as well. Um, anyway, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. And thank you to a very warm Damon Evans and a very cold Hamish Penman for joining us. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com 
Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.